Hello listeners, Ian here from Endless Summers. Excited to bring you season two of the podcast, coming from the 1896 Tour of England up to the Triangular Tournament of 1912, the last series played by Australia before the First World War. Just a note on the release schedule. Due to a variety of factors, being the dad of two boys under three, having a full-time job, and the work I do on my other podcasts, I don't want to promise to have all the season out in a regular sequence, only to fail at the goal of an episode every fortnight. So what I've decided is that the first half of the season, up to the 1903-04 tour by England, will be released at the usual schedule, then the show will go on hiatus for a couple of months to allow me to plan and write the remaining episodes before releasing those shows. I'm hoping there will only be a two or three month gap between halves. If you're listening to this well into the future, hopefully the whole of season two is there for your enjoyment. Thanks for all the responses and feedback I've gotten so far, it really means a lot. Please do email or leave a review if you are enjoying the show or you have some suggestions for improvements. And now, let's play. Welcome to Endless Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History podcast. Season 2, Episode 1, 1896 in England. Let's get ready to trumble. The profits generated from the successful English tour of 1894 and 95 allowed for the major cricket clubs to expand their control over big cricket. This included the Sydney club using their windfall to construct a new scoreboard designed by Ned Gregory that was considered one of the wonders of the cricketing world. This was completed just in time for the Sheffield Shield clash between New South Wales and Victoria in January of 1896, a match won by Victoria by four wickets. This would be the only loss suffered by the New South Welshman that season, however, leading to their first Shield victory since its inauguration four years prior. This was driven by the batting of Donnan and Iredale, who both scored over 400 runs, whilst Tom McKibben took 31 wickets. A month prior in December 1895, the Australasian Cricket Council met to choose the tourists for the 1896 trip to England, which would include three tests. The council had previously rejected a request from the Queensland Cricket Association to have a man on the panel to select the side. However, New South Wales nominated Percy McDonnell, who had played for New South Wales, but was now living in Queensland as their representative on the panel, giving the Northern State at least some say in the construction of the side. McDonnell was joined by George Giffen as the South Australian rep and Harry Trott as the Victorian selector. Between them, the three chose 13 players to head to England. Trott and Giffen both chose to tour. Harry Graham, Hugh Trumbull and Sid Gregory were the only others with previous touring experience. Darling, Ernie Jones, Iredale, McKibben and Donnan had all played chess cricket before, but were making their first trip to England. The biggest selection dilemma was over the wicketkeeper, as this would be the first tour since Blackham's retirement. Affy Jarvis, Long Blackham's understudy on previous tours, was now considered to have put on too much weight and was not selected. The first choice was a New South Wales keeper, JJ Kelly. As backup, the selectors chose Jack Harry from Victoria. Charles Eady rounded out the squad, a Tasmanian who had distinguished himself by scoring twin hundreds against Victoria in 1895. After calling for applications receiving over 30, the ACC chose Harry Musgrove as tour manager. Musgrove was a former test cricketer himself, having played one match in 1884. The biggest name missing from this side was Albert Trott. Trott had been exceptional against the previous English side with both bat and ball, and had been expected by most pundits to be selected. His shield season had not been his previous standard though, which contributed to his non-selection. Albert would make his own way to England, joining the MCC staff in order to play for Middlesex. He was successful in this, qualifying for the 1898 season and putting in 12 years of service for the county, once famously hitting a ball over the Lord's Pavilion. He was even selected for an English tour to South Africa, playing two tests to take his total to five. 
However, he suffered from illness following his career and would eventually take his own life at the age of 41. When the team gathered prior to the tour, the players began to exert their power against the board. Trot was elected captain, somewhat surprisingly given Giffen had captained the previous Australian side. However, Trot was well respected by all in Australian cricket and had won praise for his man management skills which, given the issues on the previous tour, were well valued by the players. This commitment to a better touring experience saw the players, going against the wishes of the board, choose to remove Jack Harry from the tour, replacing him with another Victorian keeper, Alfred Johns. Johns was considered very proficient behind the stumps, but injuries would limit his career. A disgruntled Harry sued the board, demanding that he be compensated with his tour fee, but eventually settled for £160 compensation. The board failed to hold firm with their selection, demonstrating the players still had a measure of authority that the board couldn't override at this stage. Before the tour departed, the final game of the Shield season took place as South Australia travelled to play New South Wales. There, 18-year-old Clem Hill played an outstanding knock in the first innings, scoring unbeatable double century against a test-quality attack which included Turner, McKibben and Callaway. After much promotion by state captain Giffen, the touring squad decided to offer the impressive young loved hander a spot in the squad, although he would officially be travelling as the assistant to Musgrove and receive a far lower share of the money earned from the tour. As a farewell, the Australian touring party played a game against the team selected from the rest of Australia. Tourists Hill and Kelly played for the rest, which included a host of players with test experience, captained by McDonnell, including Lyons, Bruce, Jack Worrell, who had earlier that season made 417 in Victorian club cricket, the first Australian to ever score over 400, Conningham, Turner and Albert Trott. The touring side won a close-fought contest by two wickets, with McKibben the star, taking 10. The Australians then headed to Adelaide, where they set sail for England, arriving in early May. The English, under Lord Hawke, had toured South Africa just prior to the English season. This has seen the return to test cricket of George Lohman, who took an extraordinary 35 wickets in the three tests, including a best of 9 for 28. This series also saw the debut of Tom Hayward, a right-handed batsman who scored a century in the second test, whilst also seeing Sammy Woods, who had played in the test for Australia in 1888, become the fourth man after Midwinter, Murdoch and Ferris to feature for both Australia and England in test matches. The English comfortably won the series 3-0. As was custom, the first match of the tour came against Lord Sheffield's 11. Sheffield had again put together a test-strength side, captained by Grace and featuring Shrewsbury, Jackson, Gunn and Mould. Ranjit Sinji, who had gone to make his test debut later that season, was also chosen. After the Australians posted 257, Grace opened the batting with Jackson. Awaiting him was the speedster Ernie Jones, bowling his first ball on English soil. Jones' pace was far above anything the English had seen from an Australian before. His first ball struck Grace on the knee. The second hit him on the thigh. The third ball rose higher, striking the doctor on his rib. With the fourth, Jones let rip a bouncer that passed through the doctor's legendary beard. At this, Grace, who was about to turn 48, asked Jones what exactly he was up to, with Jones reportedly replying, Sorry, doctor, she slipped. Grace would go on to make 49 before falling to Jones, whilst the match would end up in a draw. There were 11 more games prior to the first test at Lords in June. The Australians would win seven of these, mostly against the county sides, who they would go undefeated against for the entirety of the tour. Against the Wembley Park side, the Australians came up against an old friend, the demon Fred Spotheth. Spotheth showed his class, taking 11 wickets for the match, but the Australians took the win. The following match was against the MCC. The locals batted first, putting on 219. The Australians then put in their most dismal batting effort, being dismissed for 18 and only 22 overs. They put in a better performance in the second innings, but still lost by an innings and 18 runs. The English destroyer was Jack Hearn, a medium pacer who had made his test debut on a tour of South Africa four years previously. After taking four for four in the first innings, he claimed all nine wickets in the second, Giffen was absent with an illness, to finish with 13 for the match. Dick Power also claimed five for none in three overs in the first innings.
Despite this loss, the Australians were overall happy with their preparation heading into the first test. Their key bowlers, Giffen, Jones and Trumbull, were all effective with the ball, whilst Darling, Donnan and Gregory were putting in good batting performances. The two that were struggling the most were Iredale and McKibben. As such, they were left out of the Test 11. Joining them on the bench was the backup wicketkeeper Johns. The side would therefore include three Test debutants in Edie, Kelly and the 18-year-old Clem Hill. The English were fortunate to have the services of George Lohman, having returned from South Africa, where he would be paired with his Surrey teammate Tom Richardson. Hearn's bowling performance for the MCC also saw him picked, whilst other familiar faces to Australians in Stoddart, Abel, Brown, Gunn and Jackson were also picked. Two new faces were right-handed batsman Tom Hayward, who had made his debut against South Africa early in 1896, whilst Dick Lilly was chosen as wicketkeeper and would go on to be a fixture of the side. The one question was the absence of Ranjit Sinji. Despite being one of the top batsmen in England that season, his Indian origin meant that the MCC were reluctant to put him up for selection. Grace again captained the English, but lost the toss to Trot, who chose to bat. The match drew an enormous day one crowd of 30,000, with people spilling onto the playing field. The conditions were considered perfect for batting as the Australian openers Donnan and Darling headed out to face the English pair of Richardson and Lohman. Proceedings started stately enough, with three runs in the opening over, followed by successive maidens. In Lohman's second over, Donnan cut a ball hard to cover point. The ball ricocheted away towards mid-off. Donnan set off for a run, but was sent back by Darling. Jackson swooped on the ball and threw it to the keeper's end, catching Donnan short. He was replaced by Giffen, who fell for a golden duck, edging a ball from Lohman behind. The captain Trot entered at two for three. He struggled with Lohman, but managed to survive the rest of the over. Darling took a single off Richardson, who then uprooted Trot's leg stump. The Australians were now at a disastrous three for four. Gregory joined Darling and the two settled the innings, although they struggled to pierce the field. They took the score onto 26 before Richardson struck twice in an over, with Gregory being followed back to the pavilion by Graham. Hill could only manage a single on debut before he too was dismissed, chopping a ball onto his wicket from Lohman. He was replaced by another debutant in Edie, who came to the crease at 6 for 31. Darling, at the other end, had batted with few issues as wickets fell around him and would take his score onto 22 before he became Richardson's fourth victim after batting for almost an hour. From here, the tail put up little further resistance, with the Australians eventually being all out for 53 in only 23 overs, with Edie not out 10. Richardson and Lohman had bowled unchanged, with Richardson finishing with 6 for 39, whilst Lohman was miserly with 3 for 13. The game hadn't even reached lunch yet as the English began their innings with Grayson Stoddart. Any chance of the Australians repeating what the English had inflicted on them were dashed by the solid batting of the two openers, who managed to the break comfortably against the bowling of Jones, Giffen and Edie, departing the field with the score on 37. The break provided some change of fortune for the Australians, with Edie catching the inside edge of Stoddart's back to, onto the stumps with only a run added. This hope was soon extinguished, however, as Grace combined with new batsman Abel to take the English into the lead to loud cheers from the home supporters. The Australians were not helping themselves in the field, with Edie dropping a bell when he was on nine, whilst Grace received four over throws from a wild return. Trot and Trumbull were tried, but failed to keep the runs down. Grace brought up his 50 as the team reached 100. In doing so, he went past a 1,000 test runs, becoming the second Englishman to do so after Shrewsbury. Abel was scoring quicker, though, and was chasing down his captain's score, with his play-behind point a highlight. Finally, as the partnership had reached 100, the Australians took their second wicket, with Giffen catching the edge of Grace's bat to dismiss him for 66. 2 for 143 soon became 3 for 152, as new batsman Brown was bowled by Jones. His replacement gun combined well with the bell, putting on over 40 runs. Gunner made it to 25 before he was dropped by Kelly off 80. Luckily for the Australian keeper, he got another chance in the next over off Trumbull and made sure of it, with Gunn being dismissed without having added to his score. This brought Jackson to the crease at 4 for 197. He batted freely, complimenting Abel well and taking the English lead to beyond 200. Abel, who was approaching his century, played over a ball from 82 to bowl for 94. 
His innings had taken right on three hours and included 13 boundaries. This brought about a flurry of wickets, as the English went from 4 for 256 to 8 for 267, with the last three falling within a run of each other. Giffen claimed two of these, including Jackson for 44, whilst Edie had the other. Hayward and Hernwood managed to take the English to stumps without further loss, ending the day of 8 for 286, with a commanding lead of 233. The lopsided state of the match saw only half the attendance of day one. These patrons saw the English innings wrapped up within 10 minutes of the commencement of play, with Hearn and Richardson both falling to the bowling of trot. The English ended their innings on 292, with Giffen and Edie both claiming three wickets apiece. Trailing by 239, the Australian second innings started just as poorly as the first. Don had injured his hand fielding the previous day, and so Edie was paired with Darling. Both men were out to Richardson with only three on the board, with Darling's middle stump sent flying, whilst Edie was caught behind. Giffen and Trot then steadied the innings somewhat, preventing a collapse. They batted aggressively, hitting multiple boundaries. Giffen was missed on 21 by low minute slip. The Australians were able to go past their first inning score with only two wickets down before the 59-run partnership was broken, with Richardson clipping the top of Giffen's off stump, dismissing him for 32, a score which included seven boundaries. This brought Gregory into bat with his captain. From here, the balance of the match began to shift. Trot, who had been struggling to this point, now batted with more fluency, whilst Gregory batted with freedom. They were helped by Grace's captaincy, who continued with Richardson despite the great bowler struggling with a heavy workload. Gregory hit the speedster for multiple boundaries on the league side, whilst also cutting in for four. Haywood and Hurd both nearly bowled trot. The Australian captain survived, helping Gregory take the score onto 100. Richardson was finally relieved after over an hour of bowling, but the damage was done. The Australians now set on the good batting strip. Trot took his score past 50 and had made it to 61 before edging a ball to Haywood at slip. The fielder threw the ball in the air celebrating, but was miffed when the umpire gave it not out, believing that the ball had not made it to him cleanly. This allowed the Australians to go to lunch without further loss with a score on 152, with the partnership of Gregory and Trot having put on 90 runs in only 70 minutes. Grayson Richardson started after lunch and failed to curb the scoring with the batsmen scoring all around the wicket, with Trot moving into the 90s. He reached 99 before edging a ball behind off Richardson, where Lily, the keeper, spilt a simple chance. The following ball, he attempted a quick single to Jackson. Trot would have been short of his ground, but the throw went wide, allowing the Australian captain to complete his first test century. The Australian score went past 200, and then with a boundary to Gregory, the last of the deficit was a race to enthusiastic applause, with seven wickets still in hand. Trot and Gregory then celebrated their 200 partnership as Gregory entered the 90s. Here he became more circumspect, with Hearn and Jackson limiting his scoring. Finally, he managed to get a shot away through point to bring up his 100, his second in tests. After completing his milestone, he finally made an error, edging a ball from Hearn to Lohman at slip to be dismissed for 103. He batted for two and a half hours and hit 17 boundaries, sharing a 221-run partnership with Trot. At this stage, the Australians led by 44 runs with six wickets still in hand. However, the game shifted again at this point. Six runs later, Trot skied a ball off Richardson where he was well caught by Hayward. His 143 was not chanceless, and England felt aggrieved that he had not been given out on 61, but also hit 24 fours in his four-hour stay at the crease. With two fresh batsmen, the English pressure increased. Hill and Graham took the score to 300, but then both fell cheaply. Trumbull and Jones also fell afterwards, leaving the Australians at 9 for 318. Donnan came in with his broken hand for the last week of partnership with Kelly of 29, but when Hearn bowled Donnan, the innings closed on 347, setting a target of 109. The wickets have been shared evenly between Richardson and Hearn with five apiece, with Richardson completing another 10-wicket match. Given their first innings, it was a good response from the Australians, although considering where they were at the end of the Gregory-Trot partnership, they would have been disappointed. The English only had 15 minutes left to navigate in the day, but managed to lose one wicket, with a bell being caught by Iredale's subfielder off Jones. They made their way to 16, still requiring 93 for victory. 
Rain began overnight and continued to just before the start of play. After inspecting the pitch, the umpires decided play should commence, but the batting conditions had deteriorated. This allowed the Australians to build pressure, with only four runs coming off the first seven overs. The pressure finally got to Grace, who edged the ball to short leg off Trumbull. This left the English at two for 20. Brown joined Hayward and looked more comfortable than his partner on driving Jones to four, although he was lucky to survive as a ball fell just short of Jones in his follow-through. Hayward never looked comfortable in this day and was soon out for 13, bowled off a fuller ball from Jones. Stoddart joined Brown and played second fiddle, with Brown being the best to handle the conditions all day. The score went past 50 as Australians continued to generate half chances. Brown edged the ball just short of Giffen at slip, while Stoddart was missed by Iredale. Between these, though, the English were managed to find enough boundaries to progress the score, taking it on to 82 before Brown edged the ball off 80 to the keeper, out for 36. With the amount required now under 30, Stoddart was joined by Gunn, and the two managed to see the English home without further loss, giving them a six-wicket victory and taking a 1-0 lead in the series. The Australians were left to rue their poor batting in the first innings, meaning they always had to play catch-up for the rest of the game. This match would be Lohman's last ever test match. He would be selected for the second test at Manchester, however pulled up lame on the morning of the game and chose not to play, whilst the pay dispute over the remuneration of professional cricketers meant he would reject selection in the third test. He would end up living back in South Africa, where he would die five years later from tuberculosis at the age of 36. He reigns the fastest ever to 100 test wickets, taking only 16 matches, one less than Turner, Sid Barnes, Clary Grimmett and Yassir Shah, and has the lowest average and strike rate for anyone to reach that milestone. He was inducted into the ICC Hall of Fame in 2016. The Australians responded well to their defeat in the first test, winning five of the six games up to the second test in Manchester. The standout performance came from the two of the players left out in the first test. McKibben claimed 7 for 23 against Yorkshire, whilst Idow scored three centuries and a 94. This included 171 against the professional players. As such, both men were brought into the side for the second test, replacing Edie and Graham. This marked the end of Graham's short but enigmatic test career. The English had complications with their selections. As well as the withdrawal of Lohman, Poa, who had already bowled well against the Australians this season, was left out surprisingly. With Hayward, who had been the fourth main bowler in the previous tests, also out, the English were relying heavily on Richardson, Hearn and the returning Briggs. Gunn also was withdrawn from the side. Archie McLaren, who had played little throughout this season, was recalled, with many pundits taking exception to this selection. The final spot, after the Australians were asked for approval, went to the Indian Prince Ranjit Singhji. This caused a lot of discussion in the papers, but there was no questioning his batting prowess, being one of the few players in England who had comfortably handled the pace of Ernie Jones. With the match being played at the height of summer, the pitch was hard and good for batting. As such, when Trott was again successful in winning the toss, he had little hesitation in batting. The form batsman of the side, Iredale, opened with Darling. Iredale glided the first ball of the game from Richardson for four through the slips, followed by a three off his pads. When Darling cut the last ball for four, 11 had been taken from the first over. The partnership continued in this vein, with Darling, who had survived a drop chance on nine, hitting six boundaries before edging one from Richardson through to the keeper. He made 27 out of an opening partnership of 41 and was replaced by Giffen. The great all-rounder was nearly run out trying to get off the mark, but soon settled into partnership with Idale. The lack of depth in the English bowling started to show as fourth bowler Jackson was severely punished by both batsmen, with Idale taking three fours off one over. This saw the batsmen manage to get the score up to 130 at lunch without losing another wicket, with both batsmen having passed 50. Giffen dominated after lunch, despite surviving some close chase from Richardson, who was the only bowler to give the batsmen trouble. He scored heavily through the leg side and had reached 80 soon after lunch out of a partnership of 131 before Richardson switched ends and finally brought about the dismissal, getting Giffen to hit a catch back to the bowler. He batted for just under two hours with 12 fours. Now partnered with his captain, Idale took charge, driving Hearn for multiple boundaries and bringing up the team 200. 
He brought up his century, his second in tests, soon after to Hardy Cheers. He would make his way to 108 before being dismissed, with Briggs managing to penetrate his defences. He batted for almost four hours and hit 16 fours. At a dominant three for 242, Gregory joined Trot. They continued the pace of the scoring of the previous batsman, racing it on towards 300, whilst Trot became the third batsman to pass 50 in the innings. At this point, Grace, running low on bowling options, turned to the wicketkeeper Lily. Trot tried to smash a long hop out of the ground, but could only edge it behind, where replacement wicketkeeper Brown took the catch, dismissing the Australian captain for 53. Without adding to the score, Gregory was out next over, caught it slip off Briggs. The double strike had reduced the Australians to 5 for 294. From here, the English would make regular incisions for the remainder of the day. Helen Donnan fell cheaply, whilst Trumbull batted well for 24 before edging a ball onto his stumps. Richardson claimed all three of these wickets. Kelly and McKibben managed to take the Australians to the close of play at 8 for 366, still a strong position despite the late wickets. On day two, the Australians lasted a further three quarters of an hour, taking the score onto 412. Once again, Richardson played a lone hand, taking the final two wickets to finish with 7 for 168 of 68 overs. The English Open with Stoddart and Grace. Whilst Jones bowled the first over, Trot surprisingly bowled himself from the other end. This proved to be a masterstroke, as Trot's loopy leg breaks tempted both openers from their creases, only to be stumped by Kelly. With both openers gone with a score on 23, debutant Ranjit Sinji, also known as Ranji, was joined by Abel. With Abel playing a disciplined innings, Ranji played all the shots that have made him a success in county cricket. In particular, he was masterful with the leg glance. The Australians tried all their bowling options without success, as Ranji reached 50 on debut. The score moved past 100 before the Australians finally managed to break the partnership, with McKibben having a bell caught for 23. Seven runs later, with the score on 111, Ranji played a cut shot off the same bowler, with Trot catching him low down to his right. The debutant had made 62 with eight boundaries and was warmly applauded. The two new batsmen, Jackson and Brown, moved the score on to 140 before an attempted quick single ended in Jackson returning to the pavilion, run out for 18. McLaren entered and immediately edged the ball to Trumbull at slip, who took it at the third attempt. Brown and Briggs both fell to the bowling of Trumbull, leaving the English at 8 for 166. However, Lily, the wicketkeeper, was batting with fluency. He found a willing partner in Hearn, who stuck around to help add 53 for the ninth wicket. Lily managed to bring up his half-century and take the score past 200. When Hearn departed for 18 at 219, Lily was left with only Richardson to partner him. He found the strike for a time, but eventually Richardson was a run-out, leaving Lily undefeated on 65. The English score of 231 left them 181 behind, with Trot enforcing the follow-on. With over an hour left of play, Grace and Stoddart commenced. They batted calmly, moving the score into the 30s without trouble, before the high pace of Jones managed to force Grace into hitting a simple catch to Jones at point. This brought the best batsman from the first innings, Ranji, to the crease. He continued his previous vein, batting with brilliance in partnership with Stoddart. The two moved the score to 76 and looked to be shifting the momentum of the match, but Stoddart, who had reached 41, played over a ball from McKibben to be bowled. Abel and then Jackson became victims of some excellent catching from McKibben off the bowling of Giffen, with Jackson wicket ending the day's play. This wicket for Giffen gave him his 100th in Test cricket, the second Australian to do so after Turner, as well as making him the first player in history to complete the double of 1,000 Test runs and 100 wickets, a fine achievement for the great all-rounder. The English were now down four of their best batsmen, still 72 behind the Australians at four for 109. Ranji, though, was still there on 41. Whilst he was in, there was still hope. Only 6,000 people turned up for the final day, less than half of what had been present on the previous days, in expectations of an easy Australian victory. However, Ranji had other ideas. He was joined at the crease by Brown, who attempted to force the game. He made his way to 19 before he played one shot too many, being caught by Iredale and the slips off Jones. McLaren joined Ranji at 5 for 132. 
Ranji soon after passed 50, having batted cautiously to this point. Reaching this milestone released the shackles from him, and he started to be more adventurous with his stroke play, particularly the leg glance, of which we are said to have perfected the shot and brought it into common use in cricket. He had 26 off four overs from Giffen, forcing the great Australian bowler to retreat from the attack. McLaren looked to give Ranji the strike contributing 15 out of a 47-run partnership for a spoon to catch off trouble into the offside. However, he had set the template for the other batsmen in the innings, holding the line whilst Ranji was playing so fluently. Lily replaced him at the crease and filled the same support role. The partnership took the English into the lead whilst Ranji continued to play his shots, not slowing down as 100 approached, bringing up the milestone on debut after 2 hours and 10 minutes of batting, with the last 50 coming in a rapid 40 minutes. The English started to build their lead, taking the score past 200 as hope began to rise among the home spectators. Giffen was eventually brought back and managed to achieve the breakthrough, with the lead being caught at short leg for 19 with a score at 232. Briggs and Hearn also played an important role in partnerships as Ranji continued to score at will. When Hearn was ninth out with a score at 304, Ranji had made his way to 154. He would not add another run though as Richardson managed a single before being caught off Trumbull, ending the innings at 305. Ranji's knock had included 23 fours and a bead chanceless. Most of the observers stated they had never seen a better innings. Ranji had given the English an opportunity, but only a small one. Their lead of 124 was not much in a pitch that was still good for batting, and the Australians should have been confident in victory. However, with the pressure of chasing, Idale and Darling opened the batting and began scratchily, moving the score under 20 mainly through edges through the slips. Richardson, inspired by Ranji's effort, was bowling with fire and was rewarded when he bowled Idale for 11. Two more quick wickets were claimed by the great fast bowler, with Giffen falling in the slips for six, whilst Trot could only manage two. Darling stayed in partnership with Gregory somewhat, but he also fell to Richardson, edging behind to the keeper for 16. The Australians were now four for down for 45, and the crowd sensed the tension now building. Gregory was joined by Donnan, and the two hunkered down. Dehearn played a key role in allowing Richardson to attack, going for only four runs in 11 overs of bowling. Gregory managed to get runs off Richardson, looking the most comfortable Australian at facing him that innings, and moved his score into the 30s, helping reduce the target to under 50. Grace turned to Briggs and was rewarded when Gregory popped up a catch to short leg, dismissing him for 33. Half the side was now out for 79, still requiring 47 to win. Donnan and Hill then combined with a further partnership, but both will be out by the time the score reached 100, again to that man Richardson. Valuing the tailenders remaining, many felt the English were now favourites. Trumbull and Kelly then came together. Playing with as little risk as possible, the two crawled their way towards a target. The tension was so high that Trot couldn't watch their partnership, choosing to hire a cab to drive him around the ground. They got to win within nine runs of victory when once again Richardson caught the edge, this time off Trumbull. However, Lily, who had kept well all innings, spilt the chance. This was the last opportunity generated, and the two batsmen were able to eke their way to victory. The last 25 runs had taken over an hour to obtain, but the Australians were successful in gaining only their third ever test victory on English soil. Richardson's six wickets to go with seven in the first had been an outstanding performance, but he had lacked support. Despite the loss in their side, the Manchester public cheered the Australians warmly, recognising their great achievement. The series was now level heading into the third and final test of the Oval in early August. The matches between the second and third tests saw the Australians win three of the six games, whilst only losing one to an invitational side. Both Trotton Hill scored two centuries during these matches, whilst McKibben claimed 10 in the match against Surrey. The biggest development, though, was the rumblings amongst English professional cricketers regarding their conditions. Despite the profits drawn by both county championship and test attendances, the pay was low, with professionals only being offered £10 to play in the tests. This contrasted with the amateurs like Grace and McLaren, supposedly playing for free, but receiving large appearance and expenses fees for their participation. Pay for professionals generally depended on remaining injury-free, whilst those with contracts only received a few pounds a week during the winter months, not nearly enough to survive on. 
Most had second jobs and many professional players would be abandoned following their careers, with some dying penniless in poor houses. These experiences are what motivated Lyman, Abel, Gunn, Richardson and Hayward, upon receiving notice they had been selected to play in the third test, to write to the Surrey Cricket Club to demand a doubling of their match fees. Surrey refused point blank and attempted to refine replacements for the players. The move was debated heavily in the press. Finally, behind-the-scenes negotiations saw Bell, Richardson and Hayward change their position, choosing to play for the original fee. Lohman and Gunn held to their original position and thus did not play in the third test. Sotov were withdrawn after it being revealed in the press how much he would make for playing despite being an amateur, whilst Briggs and Brown weren't selected from those who played in the second test. In the final 11, their places were taken by Hayward, Bobby Peel and debutant 35-year-old Teddy Wynyard, who had built a career career around his position as a captain in the British Army. Their success in the previous test meant the Australians would go in unchanged. However, the two days prior to the test had seen a large amount of rain fall on the Oval. The morning of the test was no different. The showers continued until early afternoon, with the game only being able to start just before 5pm. Grace won the toss and chose to bat. He surmised that the pitch would always be difficult to bat on, but we be at its best when saturated and only increase in challenge when it dried out. This proved true with the play available on the remainder of the day. Grace and Jackson opened, whilst the Australians began with Giffen and Trumbull. The pitch made scoring difficult, but there was little threat of losing a wicket if the batsman played sensibly. Giffen had an LBW appeal against Grace turned down, whilst Jackson made progress with twos and threes. The score moved on to just past 50 before the first wicket fell, with Trot taking a good catch off Grace low down at point off Giffen. That was the only success for the Australians, with Ranji joining Jackson in taking the English through to stumps at 1 for 69, with Jackson on 39 not out. The sun shone at the commencement of the second day, meaning the drying of the pitch would begin with earnest. Jackson and Ranji began cautiously, with Giffen and Trumbull providing few loose deliveries. When his score had reached 45, Jackson pushed forward to the delivery from Trumbull. The ball held in the wicket and he only managed to pat it to short mid-on, when McKibben took the catch. This was the first wicket for Trumbull in a match that would take him from handy player to leader of the Australian attack. Hugh Trumbull was born on the 19th of May 1867 in Collingwood, Victoria, and came from a cricketing family. His father William played for the South Melbourne Cricket Club, whilst his older brother John had played seven tests for Australia in the 1880s. His father laid out a pitch in their backyard to prepare his boys, lying a feather on a good length for his sons to hit. Hours of practice allowed Hugh to grow into an accurate off-spin bowler. He made his first class debut in 1887-88, taking 752 against New South Wales whilst bowling in tandem with Fred Spotheth. Good performances in shield cricket saw him selected to go on the 1890 tour of England, where he struggled with the English pitchers. He was next selected for the 1893 side, but again struggled. There was some surprise when he was selected for the current tour, with Tom Horan stating he didn't think Trumbull could be a success. His experience was starting to pay off though, as he was used to great effect in the tour games. His test returns hadn't been as great, and in the eight tests he'd played up until this one, he'd only taken 17 wickets in eight matches at 36. This match would be his turning point. In the over following Jackson's wicket, Giffen had Ranji playing back to a ball, only to be completely beaten and bowled, a shocking development given Ranji's apparent mastery in his short test career to that point. The English were now 3 for 78 as the two new batsmen, Abel and McLaren, began to develop a partnership, mostly in singles as the bowling remained tight. They slowly progressed to score past 100. Trot decided to switch the end Trumbull's bowling from, swinging him around to the pavilion side. This proved a masterstroke. McLaren had made his way to 20 and was gaining confidence when a ball from Trumbull beat him all ends up to bowl him. New batsman Hayward suffered the same fate without a run added. England were now 5 for 115. Debutant Wynyard held out for 10 runs until he skied a ball off McKibben, where he was well caught by Darling. Another three wickets fell for only seven runs, with Trumbull the destroyer, including a bell for 26. Hearn and Richardson added seven runs for the last wicket, but when McKibben bowled Hearn, the English innings ended on 145. 
Trumbull finished with figures of 6 for 59 off 40 overs, including 5 for 10 in the 9 overs after the switch events was made. The Australians, with Darling and Iredale opening, started confidently, with Darling hitting Peel for a boundary in the first over. This confidence soon waned, as numerous balls went past the edge of the bat or just missed the stumps. With a lot of luck though, the Australians were able to make it through to lunch at 43 without loss. The luck continued following the break, with both batsmen surviving chances. The 50 partnership was raised and Darling started to play some of the more authoritative shots of the innings, including two drives to four off Hearn. It then ended a ball through the slips where it headed towards the boundary. It took so long for the field to reach it that it already ran four and turned for a fifth. However, Iredale couldn't make his ground in time to beat the throw, being dismissed for 30. The opening partnership made it 75. From here, the game shifted again. Darling was soon out for 47, caught off Hearn. Trot, Hill, Gregory and Giffen all then fell for single-figure scores at the hands of Peel and Hearn, with Giffen having batted for half an hour before being dismissed for a duck. From 75 without loss, the Australians were now 6 for 85. Donnan and Kelly then combined for a partnership, taking the Australians past the 100 mark. With a score at 112, Hearn jagged one past Donnan's defences, dismissing him for 10. The final three wickets could only contribute seven runs, leaving the Australians all out for 119, trailing by 26. Hearn had been the main destroyer, with 6 for 41 of his 26 overs. With the pitch deteriorating, any lead was going to be crucial. Grace and Jackson moved the score along in 1s and 2s before a Trumbull double strike had both openers out with a score at 12. New batsman Ranji and Abel struggled, with many balls just missing the outside edge. When Ranji finally looked like getting on top of the bowling with a boundary, he was tempted out of his crease by McKibben to be stumped for 11. McLaren joined Abel with 3 quarters of an hour left in the day's play. They held out well with a couple of close scares against McKibben and Trumbull, leading Trot to turn to the pace of Jones. The first three balls of his over saw seven score by a bell, bringing up the English 50. With the fourth ball, he pegged back McLaren's leg stump. Hayward replaced him and began with the boundary, but a bell was then caught by Giffen off Trumbull trying to loft the ball over mid-on, falling for 21. Wynyard joined Hayward and the two managed to make it to the end of the day without further loss. 24 wickets had fallen on the day's play as the English ended on 5 for 60, with a lead of 86. Overnight due meant the pitch remained in the same state as the previous day. Any target was going to be difficult to chase, so the English were looking to add as many as possible for their remaining wickets on day three. They started well, taking seven off McKibben's first over. The next over was bowled by Trumbull, who again claimed a wicket. This time, Hayward caught it short leg. He nearly had new batsman peel in the same over, but Giffen spilled the chance. Four maidens then followed before Trumbull again struck, claimed both Wynyard and Peel in the same over, giving him his second fifer and ten for the match. Hearn fell after adding a run, bowled off stump by McKibben. This left the English at 9 for 67. Last pair, Lily and Richardson managed to take the lead past 100 with some well-run singles. They took the English score onto 84 before Lily was caught at cover point off that man Trumbull, ending the innings. Trumbull had 6 for 30 in the second innings, finishing with 12 for 89 for the match, whilst McKibben claimed 3. The English had set a target of 111 for the Australians to win the series. Richardson commenced for the English with a maiden. At the other end, Hearn managed to get a ball to turn sharply from leg to off stump of Joe Darling, bowling the Australian opener for a duck. Recognising the skills required on the pitch, Grace replaced Richardson with Peel, and the two bowlers set to work dismantling the Australian top order. None of the Australians could withstand the bowling for very long, with Iredale and then Giffen joining Darling as victims of Hearn. Peel got in the act by dismissing the Australian captain for three, leaving the Australians at four for seven. Hill joined Gregory, who took the first runs off Hearn with an edge through the slips. Neither Hill nor his replacement Donnan could trouble the scorers, both being dismissed by Peel. Gregory managed to get to six, the highest score of the inning so far, before he hit a simple chance to Richardson at the short leg, with Peel claiming his fourth victim. Seven victims had fallen for 14 runs, and the Australians were in danger of falling for less than they had scored against the MCC earlier in the tour. 
Kelly and Trumbull took the Australians past that low mark, but Kelly fell at 19. The final two wickets managed to add some respectability, with last man McKibben slogging the top score of 16. When he was out to a brilliant catch it slip by a bell off Hearn, the Australians had finished on 44, losing by 66 runs. Peel had claimed 6-23, whilst Herman had taken the other four, finishing with 10-60 for 60 for the match. The English therefore finished the series ahead 2-1, claiming the Ashes for the third time in a row. The Australians finished off their tour with another seven matches, only losing one. There are a lot of excellent performers on this tour. Darling headed the run charts, scoring 1,500 runs with three centuries, while Gregory Idale, Trott, Giffen, Hill and Donnan also passed the 1,000-run mark. Trumbull was the star bowler, with 148 wickets at 16, with 12 5-wicket hauls and 5 10-wicket matches, whilst Jones, Giffen, McKibben also achieved 100 wickets. Giffen, for the third time, completed the double of 1,000 runs and 100 wickets on tour. This marked the end of George Giffen's stellar test career. He was the first great test all-rounder, finishing with 1,238 runs at 23 and 103 wickets at 27 in his 31 tests, although that could have been even greater given he refused to play test cricket between 1887 and 1890 due to issues of pay and selection. He would go on to play first-class cricket into the 20th century, finishing with over 10,000 runs and 1,000 wickets, and would be inducted into the Australian Cricket Hall of Fame in 2008. Despite the loss in the Test Series, the captaincy of Harry Trott won rave reviews, especially in contrast to Blackham's anxious and divisive style three years previous. He remained cool and calm under pressure, and had no temper issues that had inflicted his predecessor. Wisdom called him the best Australian captain since Murdoch, and the results showed, the Australians winning 19 of the 34 matches, and losing only 6. It was only against representative teams that the Australians ever struggled, whilst the strong performances were also reflected in the fact that only three batsmen scored centuries against them on the tour. Trot also ensured that the efforts of the young Clem Hill were rewarded, convincing the ACC to raise his pay to the same level as his fellow tourists. There was some disquiet amongst the English over the bowling actions of Jones and McKibben, with Lisson especially calling Jones's action unfair. Neither were called for throwing on this tour, but there was a heightened sense in English cricket that more needed to be done regarding illegal actions. Whilst a loss in the Test Series, the tour would set up the Australians for future success. Trot had gone from an anonymous postman to one of the most famous people in Australia with his leadership at the Australian side, whilst Darling, Hill and Trumbull had all set themselves up for dominant roles in Australian cricket over the coming years. The long-term issue of player versus administrative power had been settled in favour of players for this tour. However, as cricket boards became more unified and strengthened their position, the power balance would begin to shift, handing more power to the administrators as cricket continued on into the early 1900s. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.